This is going to give a tremendous advantage, a Trojan horse, to third-tier banks, second-tier banks, other payment providers who are not quite banks like PayPal, to use crypto as a Trojan horse to disrupt the competitive leaderboard in financial services in a way that they couldn't do before. Hey folks, yesterday in a public letter, the U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, also known as the OCC, announced that all nationally chartered banks in the United States may provide custody services for cryptocurrencies. Coindesk's Nick Day wrote yesterday following the announcement that the letter marks a major development for the crypto industry. Previously, custody was the province of specialist firms such as Coinbase, which typically needed a state license to offer services to large investors. Now, large regulated financial companies that already provide similar safekeeping services for stock certificates and the like could enter the fray. It sounds dry, but it's a big deal, and it's our main topic on the show today. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm joined, as always, by the other host of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hey there, everybody. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts for joining us and you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. When the news hit, reactions were dramatic. CEO of Wyoming-based Avanti Bank and past guest on the show, Caitlin Long, tweeted, Game on! The US OCC's announcement that it's following Wyoming by allowing national banks to custody digital assets is great news for crypto. Long overdue and hopefully will help the US regain ground it lost to other developed world countries by dilly-dallying for so long. Winners equal customers and crypto venture capitalists. This will spur M&A boom as U.S. banks acquire digital asset custodians. And that was only the first two of her 24-part tweet storm on the topic, linked in the show notes for those who missed it. In other parts, legal mind, marmot coin hoarder, and past guest on the show, Preston Byrne, tweeted, I've never been more bullish on crypto than today. Crypto lending and saving may be how the payment of interest becomes a thing again. Banks are desperate for yield. The faster they move, the more market share they'll obtain. Lawyers and bankers are definitely excited, but why does this matter and what does it mean? Jonathan, let's start with you today. Well, looking at it from my perspective of someone who's tried to do startups in this space for some time, the largest filter that is a have versus have not versus based on the technical or business acumen or merit of your company is to do with getting a bank account and keeping a bank account and being able to even have customers in every state. I mean, the whole point about the bit license was the fact that banks were refusing to service as customers (laughs) people running crypto startups. So, you know, what this does, if the execution ends up being like the statement says it is, is it means that we're going to enter an age where a crypto startup can actually have a bank account in America and actually be serviced and not just be a Kraken or a Gemini or a Coinbase, but actually be three people, you know, asking for bank services. So, you know, the government tends to break your legs and then ask you to thank it when it gives you a crutch. And it's really glad to see that at least now they're giving entrepreneurs a crutch because <laughs> our legs been broken for a very long time. Hang on. I'm a bit confused here because this regulation is about freeing up the ability of banks to directly custody crypto. And at least what you're saying seems to be more about whether banks are allowed to extend fiat banking services to crypto companies. Why do you think the two are related? One of the purposes as to why money transmitted licenses became such a big deal for crypto services is that the act of transmitting your token, your valued instrument, is itself a currency or is considered a value transfer. And so banks would onboard in dollar terms, the ability for people to get crypto. 
But if you actually wanted to engage in crypto-related services with crypto, you yourself had to take that on, get a custodial, and become a money services business because there weren't any financial service providers that would do that for you. And so there are a lot of projects that I know of that have launched that are in existence that can't even deliver the tokens to their system to people because they're waiting for money transmitter licenses because the act of giving it to their customers would be considered money transmission. And so I think that we've become so blinded to think that banking means crypto. I mean, banking for crypto means the dirty fiat side of it and not the awesome crypto side of it. And a lot of the crypto-related activities now can be done natively by a bank, which means that as a small startup, I don't have to become a bank. I don't have to become a Kraken in order to be able to do the trivial thing I wanted to do with a Bitcoin or a colored coin. So I just want to echo that. On the one side, our experience on the show with trying to have a bank account, well, we've actually been deplatformed because the word Bitcoin is in the name, right? And that was, for a while, fairly controversial. And then on the other side of things, the work that I did with Tokenly, we often found ourselves without the ability to have a credit card processor because even the idea of touching tokens that were non-speculative in nature that did not have prices that could appreciate, well, that was still something that was on the other side of we know what we're talking about, right? <laughs> and so you had banks that were just wildly uncomfortable with this. And even the high-risk-tolerant ones, you know, the ones that specialize in dealing with really kind of sketchy applications, even those oftentimes wouldn't deal with non-controversial uses of tokens in sort of any way. So just the clarity that so long as a company is following the law, banks can interact with them, that I think is a pretty major statement and a major change from the way the banks have at least behaved to this point. We'll see if they actually do anything differently with it. But I think, again, we're going to talk a little bit later about kind of the PayPal announcement and sort of this shift that we've gone through where crypto was on the one hand, kind of in the very early days, people would adopt it or companies would adopt it and get kind of an earned press boost. And then that went away for a while as things got boring. And now we're kind of on the entire other side of that curve. But we're going to save that conversation for just a little bit later in the show. One of the things that's interesting to me is that we actually predicted this when we were analyzing the New York Department of Financial Services regulations. For many in the crypto world, the New York DFS licensing scheme that they introduced was a blow to crypto. We, I think, on the show saw it quite differently because one of the things that it did was with New York being one of the main centers of financial services in the U.S., it actually tied both hands behind the back for bankers because they couldn't incubate crypto startups within their organizations at arm's length or easily acquire them without a very heavy burden of licensing. And there weren't at the stage at the time where they would go and pursue a crypto license themselves from the New York Department of Financial Services. So everybody else simply departed New York and Wall Street that can't depart New York because it's in New York and is an actual street ended up having to basically be under these regulations that didn't allow them to do it in-house, didn't allow them to easily relate to companies that were doing it outside. And that's a problem. I don't think this regulation is going to suddenly make banks want to be custodians. The effort and risk that's involved in bootstrapping this type of in-house expertise is very, very high. It's a very difficult space to play in, and there isn't enough value in it to interest some of these Wall Street players. What it is going to allow them to do, however, is much more comfortably interact with 
third-party custodians who specialize in crypto and can provide this as a service for wealth management companies and clients, for international banking clients. And that will allow the banks to start to dip a toe into this, gain some expertise and knowledge by either buying these services from companies that provide custodian services or eventually acquiring the startups in this space in order to bring it in-house once they feel comfortable. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that the current head of the OCC is this person, Brian Brooks, who was formerly at Coinbase. So you can see the connections there, how this would benefit a company like Coinbase, because they were one of the first companies out there that was acting as a cryptocurrency exchange and, you know, doing custodial services for cryptocurrencies. And so a lot of banks who don't really know what they're getting into are going to just say, oh, it's way easier to just contract with someone like a Coinbase than to try to do this ourselves. I love how crypto has matured to the point where we too can participate in the revolving door of peddling influence between regulators and the regulated. <laughs> Seriously, this is like a mainstream moment, I think, because I mean, this is like you've made it. Yeah, I mean, we've already had the moment where crypto companies get the slap on the wrist treatment for violations. We saw that a few years back in 2015 with SEC prosecutions. And now we're seeing regulators very, very comfortably moving between roles of regulating and being regulated and then regulating again in this nice, cozy relationship of complete regulatory capture. And now we can play in that space, too. Does that mean that we're now fully jaded or kind of what's the progression here that we've gone through from like kind of idealistic on the outside to now we're like, hey, they're giving us a crutch. This is great. The broken leg has been painful for so long. <laughs> I feel like of two minds on it. You know, I almost feel like this is analogous to cannabis decriminalization in some places where we've seen some places where they've decriminalized it at least on a state level, it's still in the U.S. is illegal on a federal level, which is kind of a weird situation, but it's not really enforced by the federal DEA against specific states. But, you know, what do they do with the people who have been incarcerated for cannabis possession or intent to distribute or whatever cannabis-related crimes that are now retroactively kind of like null and void? And who got the licenses in those environments? Was it the people who had been previously had their communities destroyed by the war on drugs? No, it wasn't. <laughs> Absolutely not. It was giant corporations and rich investors who swooped in and suddenly caught the benefits of cannabis legalization. Same thing is going to happen in crypto. Well, I mean, that would be too bad because, you know, like we started out the show talking about, there have been so many crypto companies, entrepreneurs, even individuals that just have something to do with crypto that have been denied banking services. And this is like a scarlet letter in American society. I mean, I know there's lots of people around the world who don't even have access to the same kinds of banking services we do. And that that is always something to keep in mind. But I mean, if you're trying to run a business, you're an American entrepreneur, like it definitely feels like you're being kind of blackballed or blacklisted or something if you get your bank account taken away with like kind of no explanation. I think the metaphor should be, it's like you're being choked, like Operation Choke Point. Oh yeah, <laughs> yep. this is a very appropriate name. <laughs> Which is literally a government policy that is multi-administrative for the past 15 years that is explicitly using federal extra legislative powers to functionally make it illegal to engage in moral forays. So if you look at pornography, 
or marijuana or anything that's legal that an administrative might not like from an aesthetic purpose. Guns, remittances, gambling, sex work, cannabis. Used underwear. Let's draw it all the way back to the episode that we did with the folks from Open Bazaar a long time ago, right? Like, it's not illegal, but it's kind of gross. And so the companies that could enable it, you know, and that like typically would are like, well, we'd rather not take your money at all than do something that might have kind of a negative reflection on us. Yeah, policy-based morality is a very, very dangerous thing to have in any society because it can change at the whim of an administration. And it has no basis in law, which means you have no recourse. Yeah, that's the most important thing to point out. This is all just like a chilling effect. It's not specifically written that banks are not allowed to give bank accounts to crypto related companies or even like, you know, we heard an example of like a video producer that was making films about cannabis or us like, let's talk not like let's trade Bitcoin or right. sell Bitcoin. Yeah, it's the talk that they really object to, not the crypto. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, banks just get uncomfortable with it. And it's like they're almost going on intuition of like, what is the safest route we can take to not rock the boat? And that's the result of those policies that aren't like specifically coded. It's just like kind of vague, you know, that you could be punished if the government decides that you wrongly you know, accepted a customer that was turned out to be sketchy or deemed high risk, which also changes with the changing times and politics. So let's go back to this OCC thing. Now, the funny thing about this is that until yesterday, no one in crypto and no one anywhere else had ever heard of OCC unless they were in the business. Of... Yeah, I thought OCC was like this song from the 90s by Naughty by Nature, right? <laughs> I thought it was pepper spray. So, <laughs> no, that's OC. Yeah, no one had heard of it. If you're not in the compliance department of a bank, you've never heard of this organization. But the bottom line is that this isn't the first regulation of this kind. I think it's worth pointing out that this is an area in which the state of Wyoming had previously pioneered legislation in order to provide a comfortable legal framework, especially for banks that are not interstate banks, but Wyoming-based and only Wyoming-based banks that therefore didn't need to worry about regulations outside of Wyoming and were given a legal framework to do this, what, two years before the OCC? Yes, and credit to Caitlin for pointing that out on Twitter. I mean, that was... Well, and credit to Caitlin for helping make that happen in Wyoming. <laughs> exactly. And essentially what this is, is the Wyoming model being taken nationwide, I think. It seems to me to be, but not as good as the Wyoming model, which is why I think we might want to have Caitlin on the show again to describe the differences. There are some really small nuances that have to do with how these accounts are treated. One of the biggest nuances, and I haven't seen anything in the regulation that addresses this, is whether the account itself is a bailment or not. What's a bailment? Yeah. So what does that mean? That means that under some types of regulations, when a third party custodian has custody of something, they have custody, but you have ownership, meaning that you have a explicit statutory property right in that account. That account is yours being held by them. That doesn't apply to bank accounts. Surprisingly enough, bank accounts are not considered your property. And so you do not have a statutory property right in the contents of the bank account. 
And in Wyoming with crypto, they explicitly made it so that you had a statutory property right in the crypto that is being held by a custodian. It is your property under law, which means that if, let's say, the bank goes bankrupt, you don't have to wait in line as some tier of creditor and hope you get bailed out. You take your property back. And then if there's anything left for anybody else, that's their problem. Well, that's not how it works. It's supposed to go to the debt holders and then the shareholders, and then maybe the customers get some kind of recompense that's cents on the dollar. Right. And that's the difference between bailment and property. Interesting. So and what about FDIC insurance? If any banks are actually choosing to do this to custody crypto, are they going to be required to have it in FDIC insured accounts or something? And how does that even work? Because the value can fluctuate. Well, the F in FDIC stands for federal, which will make you believe it's a federal entity, just like Federal Reserve, which is also not a federal entity. FDIC is a banking consortium. It's a risk pool, and it can manage small failures of one or two banks every now and then, not systemic risk. It is regulated, and theoretically, at least, the federal government would step in. But it's one of those quasi-non-governmental organizations like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Federal Reserve, and FDIC. So will it cover crypto? (laughs) I seriously doubt it. Yeah, I just don't see any way they could do that. So let's talk about the risks, because I think that's the other big issue we haven't addressed yet. Can banks actually do this without getting very badly burned by mishandling the risk of cryptocurrency? This is not simply a digital asset that you can control. This is a system that its underpinnings are uncensorable blockchains with immutable characteristics. And that means that if it's stolen, it's gone. And it's gone. And that's in contrast to the banking system in terms of the way that it traditionally works. So yeah, I think it is a big question. One thing we were talking about before the show that's probably worth mentioning is, as always, we use Coinbase as sort of the straw man of which to kind of use as an example. But is it going to be better for people who are looking to have their crypto in some place where it can be safe, at least as far as they're concerned, and they don't have to be their own bank? Will a real bank be better at this than Coinbase or worse? Or will real banks outsource this to companies like Coinbase or kind of, I don't think we know any of that, but what do you guys think? I think they'll outsource it for sure. They're not going to try to get into this. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, they'll outsource it. They'll have to outsource it. And if they don't, it will be worse, by far worse. You can mark this as one of the rare occasions where I'm going to praise Coinbase. But, you know, they've developed an enormous amount of expertise on how to do risk management in this completely novel environment. The risk model for cryptocurrencies is completely different from the risk model of banks. I worked for 20 years in information security in banks, I can tell you. They cannot handle this risk. Their systems are not designed to handle this risk because they're based on some fundamental assumptions. And these fundamental assumptions are cooperation and control with all of the entities involved and full reversibility of everything. And so they can't handle this risk. It would require them to learn whole new tricks and they're unlikely to try to do that. And if they do, they're not going to do as well as a company, any company, but certainly a company that has managed to do it successfully for, what is it, six, seven years now that Coinbase has been around? Yeah, honestly, I mean, you can say what you want about Coinbase, but their security has been pretty good for what a big target they are. Yeah, there are a handful, 304 probably big exchanges that have 
managed not to get badly hacked, where the breaches they've had been minimal, denial of service related, without losses to customers, without operational risk or systemic risk for those companies or the space. You know, I could name maybe three or four. Coinbase, Bitstamp, Kraken, and that's it. (laughs) That was three. Can you mention any more? Maybe I'm forgetting a few unfairly. I mean, Bitfinex is a big one, but I don't know if we necessarily want to lean on their security much. (laughs) Bitfinex did get at least a $60 million loss through the Bitco hack three years ago. That's the only reason I didn't mention them. And even that was survivable. But again, that's four companies. Would I trust Bank of America, Citibank, Wells Fargo to do that? Oh, hell no. Absolutely not. So yes, to answer your question, Adam, I probably trust Coinbase more than I would trust Bank of America. Until Bank of America buys Coinbase. (laughs) Or Coinbase buys Bank of America. (laughs) We may have the AOL Time Warner moment again. Right. I think that really does kind of encapsulate it is that, you know, like we are at this point where we've always known that there was like this class of Bitcoin banks and then there were sort of the traditional legacy banks. What we don't know right now is are the Bitcoin banks going to become the traditional banks or will the traditional banks now eat the Bitcoin banks? One of those things seems like it has to happen. Or will the Bitcoin banks eat the traditional banks? Right. And in some ways, if you think about it, I think the crypto banks are much more stable and on much better foundation economically than the very fragile fiat banks. Yeah, because they've had to work twice as hard to get half as far in the beginning, especially if they were in the space early. So they've faced a lot of challenges and which have made them tough, I think. And they haven't been protected. Exactly. Unlike the traditional banks, which have been softened by protection. (laughs) Almost like a sewer rat. (laughs) Exactly. I would say, though, that from this announcement, the company that I'm most excited to see what a response would look like in terms of how it changes what they're doing is Fidelity, because they've been doing institutional custody. They're engaged in mining. (laughs) Like They have an extremely high level of sophistication and acumen in their engagement with crypto and Bitcoin. And the only thing stopping them from pulling that trigger on non-institutional custody was clarity like this sort. So I would say that, you know, would I trust JP Morgan or, you know, Chase or B of A with my Bitcoin? No, but I wouldn't be shocked if very quietly in the background, Fidelity is very rapidly putting together a retail offering for crypto. Hey, folks, things are changing here at the show. If you still listen through the LTBN subscriber feed or RSS feed and want to keep hearing new episodes as you move into an exciting new chapter, head over to ltbshow.com and subscribe for free to the new feed today with your favorite device. That's ltbshow.com if you want to hear our upcoming episodes on Zimbabwe in hyperinflation once again and mobile money, a new era of open source funding, and more over the course of August. This message is so important that we're not running any sponsors on today's episode at all. So remember, surf over to ltbshow.com and subscribe to the new subscriber feed or RSS feed today. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. And then you've got PayPal. PayPal, Square, and others like that. Now, they've always been a thorn in the side of traditional banking. They've tried to pioneer things. If you read the early writings of the PayPal founders, what they wanted to build with PayPal is Bitcoin. And so they're now entering this space, and this OCC announcement may actually unshackle them and allow them to really compete hard. For them, the risk model is actually much closer to Bitcoin. Their expertise is much closer to Bitcoin. 
And what we might see is that this will liberate companies like that to go after the banks. Did PayPal slash Venmo, which is now the same company, know that this was coming in advance or were they planning for it or hoping for it? Because, you know, there was this leak that came out, oh, a couple of weeks ago, right? Or a month ago, maybe that PayPal and Venmo were planning to somehow integrate cryptocurrency into their platforms for all of their users to be able to buy and sell. This is a topic that's been on my radar. I think I sent an email around it, but we should talk about this on July 9th. So it's been a while as we've had kind of some other things come up. But yeah, Coindesk reported early July from three sources and a story that I know that they worked on since I believe we started hearing rumors about it in Christmas and then spent a long time getting a bunch of different sources to kind of be able to put some reality to this. And yeah, that was kind of it, is that PayPal has been working on and is looking to launch towards the end of the year. This is a rumor only at this point, unconfirmed, but there's some stuff to back it up, that they'll be launching effectively crypto buy, sell, and hold services within PayPal or Venmo, but with the idea that this will be rolled out to basically all of their customers. And that was backed up on the 20th when more sources said that PayPal picked Paxos, which is a New York-based... What does Paxos actually do? Is it an exchange? Paxos is ItBit. It's an exchange. It's a constituent of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange reference rate as well. So ItBit was this hedge fund of these really cool, nice guys who are gold bugs, who back in, I think, 2009, early 2010, thought that throwing 50 grand at this weird thing at five cents was a good idea and just held and then didn't bother looking at it because who cares? It's only 50 grand. And then realized that they had enough money to start an exchange if only <laughs> to have liquidity on their own position. <laughs> and so they were one of the first commercial trusts for, for Bitcoin and then turned that into ItBit and then rebranded to Paxos because nothing says Paxos style cryptography like something that has nothing to do with cryptography. <laughs> okay, thank you for that context. Yeah, so last week, Basically, Coindesk reported that PayPal is going to be using Paxos to handle its crypto trading. And then we also got confirmation, this was on July 14th, that in a filing to the EU, PayPal had told the EU financial regulator that it had taken, quote, unilateral and tangible steps in the crypto space. And then there was another piece of this puzzle, which was a tweet thread, again, going deeply into the rumors here, a tweet thread that has now been deleted from American HODL that says that, quote, here's the scoop from one of our maximalist brothers inside PayPal is sent to me via direct message. The main driver for adding Bitcoin is monetizing Venmo. So much growth, no revenue. Then Cash App comes along, grows faster and makes money. PayPal even did a review paper considering Ethereum and Ripple and BTC and thought it would be uber cringe, but they knew their stuff and decided BTC was the way to go. Can't be sure they won't fold given there is money in shitcoins, though. They are building buy, sell, and store functionality into their wallets. Bitcoin only. Target releases the end of the year. Then I asked if it would just be Robin Hood, IOU, Bitcoin bullshit. And the response was, quote, the paper I read was both early and nebulous, but it sounds like Robin Hood BS buy, sell, and store Bitcoin in our wallet type thing. They probably don't want to lose the money they make on foreign exchange for cross-border trades, but this is just the beginning. I'm sure they won't have a choice. It will escalate into remittances. So I examined this topic in 2015 with a video I did called Infrastructure Inversion. And the idea being that when you start with a new technology, you have to operate it in a world created by and for the old technology that you're trying to replace. 
If you're driving your brand new automobile, you're driving it in a muddy, rutted road that's designed for four-hoof drive horses. With horse poop still scattered along the way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so your new technology kind of looks pathetic in that environment. But what happens then is an infrastructure inversion. You build infrastructure for the new technology and the old technology is very comfortable and it suddenly opens up all kinds of new capabilities. I made a prediction back then that we're going to see that in finance. That what's going to happen is the banks will at first resist, then they will adopt, then they will start migrating more and more of the financial services onto these new platforms until eventually the entire thing is running on top of distributed ledger, blockchain, Bitcoin, call it whatever you want, depends on how we go. This happened with the internet. The phone companies resisted. The phone companies reluctantly adopted. They then became ISPs. They then started running their infrastructure on top of digital connections. And eventually all of the world's phone calls and everything else is now simulated on top of effectively the internet backbones. So first we tried to run the internet over phone lines. Now we run phone lines over the internet. I just re-released that video infrastructure inversion, by the way. We'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. And so this infrastructure inversion presages a complete change in how financial services are delivered. And I think you're going to see these very, very slow and cautious moves. But here's another interesting thing that's happened in every previous infrastructure inversion. When you have markets where there are only a few players, oligopolies, cartels, and the markets are very static, the only way you change the leadership board, if you like, is when there is such a massive disruption that it upends the industry. You know, Kodak, Fuji, and Nikon were not going to change their relative rankings in the market, but a complete newcomer could come in and flip the market on its head. That one was Apple in digital photography. The same thing happens with banking. The same thing happens with internet services and ISPs. The smaller second and third tier competitors who couldn't compete with the big players use the disruptive technology as a Trojan horse. Smaller phone companies became ISPs faster and then got acquired or merged or grew very, very rapidly. And I think we're going to see the same thing here. This is going to give a tremendous advantage, a Trojan horse to third tier banks, second tier banks, other payment providers who are not quite banks like PayPal to use crypto as a Trojan horse to disrupt the competitive leaderboard in financial services in a way that they couldn't do before. To be more nimble, to be more daring, to take bigger risks, and to use a technology that the big players really can't absorb as fast because they've become sclerotic. I think that's going to be very interesting to watch. The big players, JP Morgan Chase, you know, companies like that, their systems are so multi-layered, so heavy. Their entire edifice of regulations, systems, processes, operations, and policies are designed to do one thing that they've been doing for decades, and they can't easily change all of that. So having less of that baggage is a big advantage. They're not going to pivot into crypto. They're not going to be able to. So if this infrastructure inversion is happening, it's going to be the smaller, more nimble players who are going to take advantage of it first. It's sort of like watching the first Rocky where he always loses at the end over and over and over again. But the story of credit unions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
is sort of just like never watching Rocky 2. It's just always <laughs> always watching the first one over and over again. <laughs> but, you know, maybe there's hope that, you know, some niche specialized credit unions could really be the champions that we need in a way that because of Operation Choke Point, they never could be. That's the bet Wyoming is making, precisely, right? Yeah, but they're doing an end run with an actual state charter. Like, the way that they're fixing credit unions is by removing the dependency of a charter from the credit union and basically letting credit unions become their own chartered bank, which is amazing. But I just mean even for existing credit unions, or if the Internet Archive were to ever re-spool back up their credit union, maybe this could help them in a way that they couldn't be helped before. Because that was a credit union that explicitly got killed functionally under choke point because they banked Trade Hill, which was the first American exchange that lasted for a week before the federal government, using no rule and no law, shut it down by telling the bank that banked the credit union that serviced the exchange that their charter would be pulled if they didn't drop the credit union. It almost sounds like a mafia. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody likes competition. That's a really nice charter you have there. It's a pity if something would happen to it. Yeah. Well, there are only two reasons to create government-backed licenses, and that's so you can pull it away from somebody and so that you get the slave mentality of the people with the licenses beating up the people who don't have the license because how fair is it that they don't have the license? And it's a very useful racket. Looking at kind of what the bit license did, bit license just turned five, so it's been five years since the bit license came out, and there are. 24 entities that have been granted bit licenses over the course of that entire period of time. Well, the bit license did very successfully did what Benjamin Lasky said it was going to do. And to this day, I'm still shocked people haven't done appropriate write-ups of this. And I think it was his first or second public hearing about the bit license. He said, and I'm going off the top of my head, but he said that he equated innovation in startups to flowers blossoming and then said that he would rather see a thousand flowers of innovation not bloom in New York than a single instance of narco-terrorist trafficking. And for those who are unaware, that's literally a quote from Mao. Yep. Wow. So when describing the philosophy that went into the approach of how he was going to rule and regulate blockchain startups in New York, he was literally paraphrasing the sentiment of Mao. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And you know what? He did it. Because for every startup or every company in the past nine years, that exists in New York, that has a bit license, I could name two dozen that have left New York. New York is probably the birth of, I'd say, 30% of the innovation of everything that's going on in this industry. And 95% of them had to leave New York in order to have a living or to succeed or to do anything with their life. Yeah, to avoid the dreaded Maoist lawnmower of Lasky. (laughs) (laughs) The lawnmower. But here's the thing. They didn't stop the garden. They just changed where it's growing. Yeah. All of these companies didn't stop. They just left. So all of the innovation still happened. It just happened in Sug Valley in Switzerland. It happened in Malta. It happened in Singapore. It happened in the Guernsey Islands. It happened everywhere else um, except for the center of finance in New York. Listen, I love the people of Wyoming. I think they are the most like rambunctious and freedom-loving people, and they have my heart and soul. But I'm a good old-fashioned, arrogant New Yorker. And I just got to say that in any scenario where Wyoming is leading the charge in financial innovation, 
it's a testament to New York's failures. <laughs> like New York done messed up really bad somewhere in order for that to happen. Like the time your third youngest brother's the one who's the best at basketball, you really done goofed. Yeah, it's almost as if Manhattan suddenly became the rodeo center of the world. <laughs> so actually, all this talk about the bit license makes me curious. Like, obviously, there's going to be some kind of permission process for this, right? If a bank does want to provide custody services for cryptocurrency or no, do they need to ask permission from someone? And who do they ask? I think that's the main thing of this. They don't need to ask. This is basically now they just got the permission, blanket permission. It's an extension of your existing banking license. You don't need additional permission, I don't think. And this letter was made public, but it was probably sent to somebody. This was probably a bank that asked about this or some type of company that would be covered under this asking for clarity. And the OCC, it looks like, chose to release this publicly in addition to sending it to them, saying that effectively, here's the rule. And by the way, everybody else, here's this thing that we're doing. So again, like, you know, in the panoply of things that are interesting in crypto, regulation is never interesting in crypto. But as far as what's important to the development of the space and how we're allowed to interact with it as people who have to live within, you know, government jurisdictions, this is a fairly significant event. Okay, so before we wrap today's conversation, I want to turn to just one quick thing on that PayPal story. And it's not really a PayPal story. It's a story that's about the kind of arc of history that we've been on over the course of the last seven or eight years, which is that. In the very early days of the show, I remember when uh, the Bees Brothers um, started accepting Bitcoin. And it was like a big deal, right? This was a couple of, I think they were 12 years old, something like that. They were very young. Yeah, it was like a father and son kind of business. Yeah, it was a family business. And basically, they had bees. And so they harvested honey and they started selling this honey for Bitcoin. And it was great for their business because everybody was like, oh, wow, I have Bitcoin and I'd like the novelty of spending it. And so people would buy honey from them and they were more successful because they chose to accept Bitcoin because at that point there were way more people who had Bitcoin than there were ways that you could really spend it on something besides, you know, like drugs on the Silk Road. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I guess. But, you know, like alpaca socks, like there were a couple of things, but it wasn't really like companies were involved. And as time went on, we saw more and more companies doing this because there was what we call an earned press opportunity, right? You were doing something as a company where even though as a company, just amongst all the other companies, you were very insignificant and probably not standing out a lot. But because you did this thing, accepting Bitcoin, you differentiated yourself. And in doing so, you attracted the attention of this crowd, people who had Bitcoin early on, and it was a good thing for your business. And so we saw that for a while. And then that kind of drifted off because the novelty passed. People who wanted to spend Bitcoin had lots of options where they could spend it. And so the novelty of a new company coming along and saying, hey, and now we accept Bitcoin kind of dropped off. And then we saw kind of like a long lull where people were like, well, is it worth accepting Bitcoin? Is it not worth accepting Bitcoin? And then over the last couple of years, we've seen increasingly, you know, companies that are on the financial side of things, Robinhood, Cash App, start to, you know, say, hey, this is actually an opportunity for us as larger companies to differentiate from other financial services companies or investing companies and offer this in an easy fashion for somebody who wants to. So now you don't have to, you know, get an account at Bitstamp. Now you can get an account at Robinhood where you're already trading stocks and you can interact with it there. And what's been interesting to me is that in the beginning, it was a competitive advantage for smaller companies to do this. But now it's a competitive disadvantage for larger companies not to do this, right? Now, the reason why PayPal is moving into this isn't because they want to appeal to the Bitcoin crowd. 
It's because they think that the audience that they have, based on the success that Robinhood has seen and Cash App has seen with this exact type of service, would also be interested in that. And they're desperate for ways to generate revenue in the ways that their competitors are. So that was the thing that really jumped out at me about the PayPal story as soon as it hit, was not that PayPal is going to be selling crypto, but that the incentive structure that we saw at the beginning versus now has fundamentally flipped. And the types of companies that are getting involved now aren't doing so because of anything ideological, but because they're afraid of the results that could happen if they don't. FOMO. Exactly. I think PayPal should be thanking the Bees brothers. <laughs> Give them a call, send them a card, something. <laughs> yeah, they're the Bees knees. The other thing I'm really excited for is there are some really fundamental things in collateralized lending that hasn't been solved yet before I personally would be involved with it as a customer. And one of them is, you know, knowing that the collateral is actually there. And so Celsius seems to be doing a good job. There are a number of providers out there. But now that, you know, actual banks can get involved, I think that we're going to very rapidly see a lot of the collateralized lending space grow and mature and have access to a lot larger customer base. Because what is banking? If not, lend me your money, I'll lend it out and then pay you interest. Yeah, I mean, it is really desperate with the trying to find any kind of interest bearing account these days. It's like really pathetic. The chase for yield, it's on. And I think that's the undercurrent of all of this, because that chase for yield is going to get worse and worse and worse as things progress because of monetary policy. So yield is now almost exclusively what will the Fed do next in every asset except perhaps crypto. And even that's not sure. You know, even crypto is strongly responding to those signals. But even a tiny bit of differentiation is important here. Even if you end up taking some of these collateralized lending crypto projects and you eat 90% of their return and use it to insure the interest bearing account, so it's only yielding 1% or 2%, that's still a very attractive proposition. Now, we're sort of reintroducing the devil we tried to kill, but you know, the old world has a way of persisting. <laughs> what that demonstrates, Jonathan, is precisely this monetary moral hazard which is that in the absence of yield, because money is cheap or free in this case, that causes people to misallocate capital in monstrous ways, which then makes even small amounts of yield incredibly attractive, even when the risk is quite extravagant. So I think one last question before we go, totally outside our area of expertise, but it's the, another thing that kind of occurred to me with this whole change. What industries or what parts of the industry within crypto is negatively affected by this? Does this hurt anybody or is this just like a positive event across the board? Like DeFi comes to mind, you know, decentralized finance is looking to replicate a lot of services that kind of banks used to provide, you know, and there's a lot of innovation in there too. But Jonathan, as we discussed before, you know, a lot of DeFi is about kind of reinventing what banking used to do before this current era. Well, I think, I mean, in a number of ways, it's bad, but that's just sort of the process of maturing which is once you have a road to being recognized, then you will comply. And so we're probably going to see more projects that do less privacy, more you know, just capitulating, because now we have a road to being recognized and being a part of the old guard. But you know, on the positives, I think the craziest thing here is that they're allowing banks to touch crypto. And so we keep talking about the government and the government's approach to us has always been 
We don't know what the hell they're doing in their magic up in the airland, but at some point the plane has to land. At some point they have to touch down to refuel. And that's where we'll get them. That's where we'll make our rules apply to them. But even the concept that, well, maybe the plane will never land is foreign to them. And what they've done here is basically said to the bedrock of the old world, hey, here's an on-ramp and here's a way to stay up in the air. And what this could be is the beginning of banks getting into crypto and not some nonsensical CME product that's a synthetic that doesn't even touch a UTXO anywhere, but an honest-to-goodness public key and a private key with real assets on it, get the banks up in the air and maybe keep large swaths of finance up in the air without ever touching back down. Well, I think that's a great analogy. And one of the things it's going to do for sure with DeFi is it's going to increase competition because if all the DeFi is doing is replicating the existing system, that's not going to be enough anymore because that only worked when the existing system wasn't touching these things. If that changes, it's going to push DeFi to differentiate. And I think there are some very interesting avenues for differentiation. And the biggest one is privacy, regulatory arbitrage, borderless operations, censorship resistance, that whole bundle of privacy-related and censorship-resistant-related aspects, which pushes towards more decentralization. Yeah, that's the niche now, because that's what only DeFi can do. Right. It has to emphasize the D, not the Phi. (laughs) Seriously. And that's great, because they could skate on just doing more or less the old Phi without much of the D. So that's going to be good. And then, of course, you know, to Jonathan's expression that this is going to give banks a way to touch crypto. I think one of the other things we're going to see is in a few years, we're going to be going, hey, little crypto, can you show us on this doll where the bank touched you? (laughs) (laughs) I think this is just a mainstreaming problem like we've been discussing. But, you know, you are considered a crazy nutcase if you stash your money under your mattress or something. (laughs) or geocache gold or something like that, where you want to have physical possession of your own wealth. And everybody says, well, why don't you just keep it in a bank? It's so much easier. And if you say, well, banks have risks too, as you pointed out, Andreas, before, legally, it's like technically not your property if you put your money in a bank. And nobody wants to think about that. But, you know, especially around the world, this is a reality. You know, you can be denied access to your own money by a bank. And it's not something that Americans think of as a big risk, but it is still possible and it is still a risk. And I think that maybe the perception of crypto is going to go in that direction too. Like even more people are going to say, oh, well, why don't you just keep your crypto in a bank? Like it's going to go out of style except for the really fringe extreme people to self-custody crypto because now it's more convenient. Like why not just give it to someone else? And unless you really have the principles in place and you really value your privacy and also your sovereignty, I guess, your ability to hold your own money and have complete and utter control over it, only governed by software, you know, you're not going to see the value in self-custodying crypto. So maybe it's going to be even fewer people that do that. And that's a little disappointing to me as an early adopter, but I guess that's just what we have to accept as far as the mainstreaming goes. Until you have systemic losses, until you have a massive theft by licensed banks. The thing is, in the developing world, there's no question about whether it's safer to put it under your mattress or put it in the bank. Not for fiat, not for crypto. That's the whole point. And so 
the people who need self-custody need it because they very much understand the risks that they would take if they give up custody to someone else. I'm glad that most people in the developed world don't need it or know about that risk, but they'll learn. They'll learn because inevitably some of these banks are going to go belly up and they're going to lose the crypto. Well, you know, my response to that, Stephanie, would be, I think we're succeeding rapidly. It's just when we talk about species-wide structural changes, they happen in human timescales somewhat slowly. But if you look at it, it's rather insidious and rather spectacular. So I like to think of it as, are we going to end the illiteracy problem or are we just going to invent illiterate ways to engage with the software, right? And so if we haven't solved for literacy, how the hell are we going to solve for financial <laughs> responsibility and banking? <laughs> so you're saying that's the real problem. Right. Yeah. It's a laggard problem. And so the way that you think about it is humans just need an interface that seems unchanging, but the back end can be structurally different. So as a species, we've basically had three ages. We had BC, AD, and a third age that just began. The crazy thing about the third age is we didn't need, you know, a Jewish guy that came back to life in order to demarcate it. It was Unix time. It just so happens that not a single human thinks or denotes time in Unix time, but every single clock and every single thing that denotes time is ultimately sourced from Unix 1 or Unix 0, which is, you know, 1970. And so we're literally in the third age of timekeeping, and yet not a single human even thinks that way because the user interface was unchanging, whereas all of the functional backend is represented by the fact that we're in an entirely new and third age. And I think that when it comes to banks, we just need a frog and water them. Like what this does is it's going to allow them to get on chain. And slowly over time, a normal human's not going to realize their bank isn't doing anything. It's just a fancy front end. But like Unix time for money, we're just going to enter this third age and slowly more and more and more is just going to be on chain. And people will just from the front end still think, you know, we're operating under AD. That's the basic principle of the infrastructure inversion, which is that you don't know that all of your phone calls are actually internet packets anymore. You still think you're using them because the interface seems familiar and consistent. And if you want to laugh a bit, there's a concept called comfort noise generation, which is used on digital phone lines to introduce a subtle hissing sound so that people who are accustomed to noisy lines don't think they've already hung up. That is going to happen with comfort banking generation, where the simulated user interface will take your Bitcoin and clear it in three to five business days, <laughs> just so that you can be comfortable and not worry about this ultra fast, ultra secure new experience. Well, Andreas, I didn't know you were gonna put the smackdown on hash time lock contracts the way you just did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Today's episode featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, Stephanie Murphy, and myself, Adam B. Levine. Music for the show comes courtesy of Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats, straight from the street, with editing by Jonas. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, or tips, send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next time.